This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Ruins of the Galaxy, a new military sci-fi series from J.N. Cheney and Christopher Hopper. Head on over to audible.com to pick up the new audiobook version performed by R.C. Bray, who has narrated more than 300 audiobooks, including The Martian by Andy Weir. And you can learn more about Ruins of the Galaxy over at ruinsofthegalaxy.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 412 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Rick Wilbur. He's the author of novels such as The Cold Road and Alien Morning, and short story collections such as Talukers and Where Garage Yellow Awaits and Other Baseball Stories. He's also the author of several nonfiction books, including My Father's Game, Life, Death, and Baseball, which explores his relationship with his father, Major League catcher Del Wilbur. Rick is also one of the administrators of the Dell Magazine's Award for Undergraduate Science Fiction and Fantasy, and he currently teaches in the Low Residency MFA program at Western Colorado University. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new short story collection, Rambunctious, Nine Tales of Determination. And today's show is brought to you by Ruins of the Galaxy, a new military sci-fi series from J.N. Cheney and Christopher Hopper. And here's a description of the book. It says, The mission is simple. Escort an emissary to an intergalactic peace summit. Try not to get in the way. Lieutenant Magnus and his 79th recon team have certainly handled worse, after all. But when an explosion rocks the tower and sends everyone into a panic, Magnus and his asset find themselves cut off from the rest of the team. Worse still, a dying alien chieftain gives them a priceless drive of intel, marking them for death. The mission has officially changed. With enemies on all sides, Magnus must do everything in his power to protect the emissary and escape the tower. There is no backup. There is no chance for failure. The fate of the entire galaxy now lies in the hands of a Republic Marine and a diplomat. All they have to do is survive. Wayne Thomas Baston, author of the best-selling The Door Within trilogy, writes, If Ruins is your first Cheney Hopper book, get ready for a lifelong alliance. And Kim Husband of Red Adept Editing writes, Expertly plotted and deftly paced, Ruins of the Galaxy evokes Star Wars with its cinematic scope, gritty battles, and dry humor. You won't want to put it down. So again, the book is called Ruins of the Galaxy by J.N. Cheney and Christopher Hopper, and you can learn more over at ruinsofthegalaxy.com. And remember to check out the new audiobook version performed by R.C. Bray over at audible.com. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Rick Wilbur. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here, David. Okay, and so your new book is called Rambunctious, Nine Tales of Determination. So how did this book come about? Uh, well, I was um, interested in putting together a collection of my favorite stories, and um, which is what these, these stories are. And, um, and I was uh, in a car with Kevin J. Anderson. Uh, we were driving from... Um, Colorado Springs, his house in Colorado Springs to Gunnison, Colorado, where we were both going to be teaching uh, at Western Colorado University's low residency program, MFA program, where we both we both work. Um, and we just started having a conversation. And um, and I mentioned that, you know, I was sort of moaning and groaning about how hard it is to to get good publishers for short story collections. At least it's been hard for me. And uh and Kevin said, well, I run WordFire Press and we'll do it. And I said, 
Yahoo, really. <laughs> and then and off we went uh, from there. That meant I had to get serious about um, I knew about the ones I wanted, but then I had to get serious while I was teaching. Uh, this is last July. So while I was teaching at that um, at that low residency uh, intensive for two weeks, I had to get serious about exactly which stories. Uh, and it all fell into place from there. I'm, and I'm very happy with it. Uh, Wordfire does great work and um, promoting it well. And, uh, and the quality of the of the book is terrific. And I think the quality of the stories is not too bad. either. <laughs> Well, and I'm sure probably everyone listening to this knows who Kevin J. Anderson is, but just in case you don't, I mean, we're talking major best-selling author. I, I couldn't even tell you how many books he's written. I mean... I've lost track myself. Yeah, <laughs> he's, a, he's a major author. Right now, he's involved heavily in... Um, he has been collaborating for years on uh, the Dune book sequels, and he's, he's very much involved in the new Dune movie that's going to be coming out um, now, you know... Movies are sort of gotten really interesting with the with the coronavirus. So, but this is a big budget movie, and he's very involved in that. Um, and yet, he still is t- turning out. He turns out books at the pace that I turn out short stories, <laughs> and uh, he turns out novels at that pace. And uh, and he also runs Wordfire Press. I don't know where he gets his energy, except he does this. Um, he's very. He's very energetic and he he hikes. He lives in Colorado Springs and he hikes in the mountains all the time and he dictates his novels while he's hiking in the mountains. And it works for him. See, that'll never work for me. I live in Florida and there are no mountains. So, <laughs> yeah, well, you so need that, to mo- that you pretty need much to move, explains that explains my career right there. <laughs> if, if only I had mountains. <laughs> Um, I mean, that Dune movie was supposed to come out in December. So, geez, I it's, sure hope uh, it's, uh, you know, people are able to go back to theaters by then. But yeah. um, who knows at this point? Yeah, that's it. I mean, there's, right at the moment, they're releasing them at movie ticket prices um, to streaming services. But I would I think that Dune movie probably needs to be seen on a big screen um, in the theater. I would I would hope we get a chance to do that. I hope that uh, we're past uh, most of what we're suffering through now by then. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I didn't I hadn't heard that uh, Kevin J. Anderson was involved with that. That's really cool. Um, you know, it's uh, Denis Villeneuve is the director who's one of the best, probably my favorite, yeah. favorite director right now. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big, big budget, big movie. They're hoping it's the big movie of um, of that season and. Um, that December area, but now we don't know. I mean, I'll happily watch it, uh, you know, <laughs> on my Kindle or on my TV set, but that would not be the same. I think a movie, a new Dune movie, needs to be seen on a big screen. So, is there anything else more you want to say about Wordfire Press? Because I think it's pretty. That's pretty new to me. I think this might be the first Wordfire book that I've uh, I've read. Yeah, Word Wordfire is very uh, very ambitious. They turn out a lot of books and. Um, I'm looking at the trade paper of Rambunctious right now, but they have a um, over in the corner of my desk. There's a really nice hardcover. Um, they do a great job. Then, of course, all the ebook editions. And um, and right now they're in the midst of um, an SF um, bundle that's out um, that that is a bunch of their books that's uh, that's doing really well. And um, 
It's just a really good, uh, you know, really good publisher as far as I'm concerned. And because it's Kevin, everything happens fast at, <laughs> uh, at WordFire. And I'm used to publishers. Uh, I, I won't name names, but I'm but I'm used to publishers that take years to come out with um, with books. And so it was um, really fun for me to try to keep up with the staff at WordFire as they were working uh, to put this book out. I have another book coming out with them in, um, in July um, with co-written as a novella that was in Asimov's called The Wandering Warriors, co-written with Alan Smale, who's a, um, a physicist, an astrophysicist at NASA Goddard, but he's also a science fiction writer. And um, Alan and I wrote a novella that we really had fun with, um, and Wordfire is going to republish that novella as a book with a couple of added stories um, that Kevin and I, uh, Kevin and I, that Alan and I, <laughs> have, well, Kevin is doing the work, but Alan yeah. and I are, are getting a couple of other, a couple stories each, a story each for two additional stories um, to sort of make the book uh, uh, bigger. Yeah. Well, and Alan is uh, one of the big names in alternate history now. He does a lot of that. He is. He is. Alan, Alan, he's a, I've traveled with Alan and, uh, and his wife, Karen, and, uh, they're terrific people. Alan and I are pals. And, uh, I always feel like as long as we don't talk about anything scientific, I can sort of keep <laughs> up with him. But, but as soon as we start to head towards science, I get very, very quiet. Um, he's a really a brilliant guy. Um, I think it's Oxford educated, uh, uh, astrophysicist. So, um, I just try to, um, I'm delighted that he's happy working with me. And I have to say when, when we collaborated for that novella for Asimov's, uh, we had a blast. It's, um, it's set, you know, he does ancient Rome alternate history and, um, and we, and I do, I write a lot of baseball stories. So we took a barnstorming baseball team <laughs> from, from the 1940s or 50s, and we uh, transported them to ancient Rome to teach the Romans to play baseball. So it's like less darkness fall, except with uh, baseball. Except with baseball, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sort of. Except except with baseball, and of course, there's a bunch of hijinks. We mend it to be a real romp and a lot of fun, and uh, and we think it was. So we think uh, maybe the book will do well. People will enjoy it. The the story got some nice reviews. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, so you said that this is uh, this new book is sort of like a um, a favorite, sort of some of your favorite stories. Is, it is. And you've been writing stories for for years, so this covers you know thirty years worth of stories to pick from. Right. Um, did you um, ever think of calling this the best of Rick Wilbur, or was no? There... I'm I'm still I'm still hoping that there's a lot more, and that we'll have a best of Rick Wilbur maybe um, in another in another couple of years. I have a bunch of stories coming out this year, so staying active. Um, but these are stories I've been publishing since 1980 um, in uh, anthologies and early on in analog and what was then Isaac Asimov's uh, magazine and a bunch of anthologies. But the earliest story in this is from 1990, and the most recent story is from 2018. So that's that's quite a span, um, and it's got sort of some of my uh, my usual stuff. It's I write a lot about uh, relationships, uh, relationships between people and relationships between sometimes between aliens and, and people. Um, 
there's a lot of sibling rivalry in here. There's a lot of um, really sort of rambunctious um, um, young women uh, faced with situations where they where they have to overcome difficulties and um, and I shouldn't give too much away, but they do. Um, I'm sort of into happy endings for the most part. So, um, so these, once I had realized these were the stories I was looking at, that made it easier for me to, out of, I think, 55 published stories, it made it easier for me to find my favorite ones that were reflective of those sorts of things. And I'm known best for baseball stories, no, no question. And I sort of wanted to not have this filled with baseball stories. I've had a collection before that was baseball stories. That was great fun. But not everybody likes baseball. Certainly not everybody likes it like I like it. So I wanted to sort of uh, dodge that. So very courageously, there's three or four stories in here that have women's women's basketball. Uh, <laughs> so so it's not baseball and um, and a men's basketball player and a uh, and a quarterback for the Hamilton Tiger Cats in the Canadian Football League. So that's me being daring and not <laughs> writing about baseball. Well, so you mentioned that the first, sto- the, the earliest story from 1990 is War Bride, which originally right. appeared in the anthology, the Owen Datlow anthology, Alien Sex. Right. So how did you uh, get invited to contribute a story to um, Alien Sex? Um, yeah, Ellen, I had been, uh, you know, my career was, you know, I was doing all right, but I had maybe, I don't know, five or 10 stories published at the time. And, um, and, uh, Ellen had come to guest lecture with me uh, at a college where I was then teaching, and um, and she was talking about uh, all these various anthologies she was doing, and um, and I said, um, you know, can I can I pitch you a story? And she said, sure. And this is the story I pitched her, and with some expert editing advice and improvements from her, uh, the story found its way into that anthology, and it was that that anthology is alive and well even today, perhaps because it's got one of the greatest names <laughs> of, of anthologies uh, of the last 50 years. Yeah, and the, the War Bride story, I, I, really, um, I really, really liked it. And it's not, not a lot of sex in the story, it's, uh, but it's kind of about a relationship between uh, a human and an alien. And, there you go. And the alien is, um, you know, the, the, the human is, is about to escape from the Earth with the alien and has a conversation with his best friends uh, who's being left behind and doesn't know that the earth is about to be destroyed. And it's a really, um, really poignant, moving story. Um, can Thanks. you talk a little bit about how that idea Thanks. came to you? Yeah, well, that, that started with, um, um, I was at the time, I was, I've always sort of interested in politics and um, in American um economic empires that um, and how we get involved in other countries and we promise them things and then we leave. And uh, and this was I was reading about um, America's relationship with the Philippines at the time. And um, and it was um, there were some sort of the typical things where where we have been where soldiers do that. You know, they they fall in love or they fall in lust and and um, and then they have to leave people behind. And I thought that's kind of a tragic story. Um, and then I began to think, you know, what if that happened to Earth instead of to instead of America doing it elsewhere? What if it happened? Um, and I just made it sort of a more global or even galactic story. 
And um, and then I wanted to sort of turn things on its ear um, in terms of uh, genre, in terms of gender issues. And so uh, and so I had it be um, um, he's a, a guy and a basketball player and he's successful. Um, but he's also the the lover of uh, an alien and the aliens have come and are, are generally um, benign in the way they rule Earth. Uh, and so he's been he's he's had a, a good life with this with this alien. Uh, but now a much more aggressive alien race is coming and wants to boot out the nice guys and take over. And they're going to wipe out Earth while doing that. And so the nice aliens are leaving and a few very lucky people get to go with them. If you think of the United States and the Vietnam War, you you see all sorts of parallels there as well. Yeah, and I mean, you've written a, a number of short stories and a, a trilogy in progress involving right. the sort of alien civilization. Is it fair to say that the this War Bride story is the seed that all that grew out of? You absolutely nailed it. You're the first person to do that, David. Well done. <laughs> um, yeah, once I wrote this story and I thought, well, that's interesting. I think I'll pursue that. And those became my Sudani Empire stories. I changed some names around. But it's essentially the the same thing. I've had a number of those stories in Asimov's um, short stories, novelettes, novellas, and Asimov's following um, some Sudani characters and one particular Earthy, as they call him, um, uh, Peter Holman, um, and and the troubles he has with um with aliens who uh, on the one hand seem to be uh you know relatively benign and helpful to earth but on the other hand um with one one flick of what they serve as as fingers they could wipe out a continent so they're so powerful that you don't dare um not sort of uh, get along with them and and once you do you could be sort of you know, emotionally, financially seduced by the favors you get. Um, and so I've written a lot of stories about the Sudanis and their relationship with Earth. In fact, I'm working on uh, working on one right now. Hmm. Uh, yeah, well, looking forward to that because I really enjoyed, yeah, I really enjoyed War Pride. And there's another, um, or there's, a you know, one of those Sudani stories in the book called Several Items of Interest. Right, and right. One thing I thought was really interesting is you know you know I've heard a lot of people suggest oh it wouldn't make sense for aliens to conquer Earth because if they had the technology to get here we would have nothing to offer them they could do pretty much anything with their technology and I thought it was interesting in this story is that what the Sudani want from Earth is the sort of like cachet of uh, Earth alcohol that it's sort of a, a yeah. novelty in their civilization and right. so it, so it's not like they couldn't create the same thing with their technology but it's like the the social value of having this um, exotic product. Right. And there's a, there's a, thank you. Cause that, that's a, a major thing I worried about early on with this whole series. Why would they, why would they bother? And I thought, well, um, they would bother because they have other planets in their, um, in their economic zone, in their empire. And, uh, and they can sell handcrafted earth alcohol to um, to the other places who will pay exorbitant prices for it because this was handcrafted on Earth. Um, and once I had come to that realization years ago now, I just I followed that up story to story sort of um, 
sort of making it uh, uh, building building on the on the system. And um, and there's some of that in uh, in Alien Morning, the novel that came out in 2016 from Tor, that um, was a finalist for uh, best science fiction novel of the year, the, the John W. Campbell Memorial Award. And um, and I and I've done a lot more of it in the sequel to that, which is Alien Day, uh, which is in production at Tor. Um, and follows um, follows that same sort of uh, economic line. In the stories, I have sibling rivalries, as I often do. I have two brothers. One of them is, um, as as happens in several items of interest in that story you mentioned, one of the brothers is uh, is fomenting rebellion, um, and the other brother is the one who has uh, has become the Earth spokesperson for the Sudani. And is sending out messages globally um, about how great everything is for Sudan, uh, and so it's been a lot of fun to to sort of go at that. And um, uh, there's some new characters in Alien Day whenever that one gets a chance to come out, and uh, and that one brings in uh, um, a woman who's barely mentioned in in Alien Morning, who's a uh, a Hollywood star who her whole career is based on the fact that. Two clicks, my my primary character. He's the actual. He calls himself the Governor General of Earth, and uh, uh, Two Clicks takes a fancy to her. And once that happens, um, anything is possible, whether it's really really good or really really bad. Hmm. So she's fun to watch go through all of that tension. I mean, I haven't read the novels, but my understanding is that the first novel, Alien Morning, is set on Earth and that the sequel, Alien Day, is set on the alien homeworld. It's and set just, on both. Yeah. I was just curious if it's a challenge to, um, you know, to set a uh, to write to, to, to set a novel in a completely alien environment and sustain that for the blink. It the is. It is a challenge. Luckily, I have friends like Alan Smale, who are <laughs> scientists, can help me with that. But um um, I set it on a uh, tidally locked planet close to a, a red dwarf star. Um, those stars are, are very common. And um, and I did that because one side, because it's simplified things for me scientifically. Um, one side is um, uh, always facing the sun and the other side is cold. It's like Mercury facing away. And there's a very small habitable zone. Um, and in that small habitable zone, um, I have an archipelago that the Sudani have hundreds or thousands of years before have settled there. They're not really from there. And they brought they're not just invasive people, but invasive species to populate uh, the oceans. And all of that was done um, just between you and me and everybody who's listening. All of that was done was to narrow down and simplify the world building that I had to do to get you on that alien planet. Well, like one of the details I really liked, this is from the, the short story, um, several items of interest. But, um, you know, it's a common problem in science fiction that's called uh, calling a rabbit a schmerp. Where yeah, you know yeah. you, you have these like alien this alien terminology, but it's describing things that are completely familiar to us. Right. And, and I liked that you had these things called benders, which um, 
are kind of alien prey animals and you have to hunt them at a particular time because uh, if they if they change genders then they don't taste as good anymore and it was just kind of this right. interesting and imaginative alien creature that's not just a rabbit by a different name right well you know it's um part of the fun of, of world building of course is uh, using what you know and getting inventive as inventive with it as you can and you want to be inventive but you also want to still have it make sense for the reader um, so the reader can understand um, what you're what you're presenting and so um, um, I like I like the benders <laughs> and uh, and I like the Sudani when they're on their their home world um, where um, you you probably noticed at least in in that story that um, they're not they don't seem to be all that bright, the Sudani, for having been these great um, uh, intergalactic or at least uh, inside our galaxy, these galactic uh, conquerors. Uh, and, and I posit that it's all inherited technology. They stumbled in to a previous society that had to abandon it, uh, the planet, in a hurry and left a lot of stuff behind. And that's what the Sudani have done. Um, to create their empire. You mentioned that the protagonist is a sort of uh, internet celebrity. Um, there are people called sweepers. Um, right. Could you talk about why you wanted to include that in the story? Yeah, I'm a, I was a journalism professor for many years and, um, on, and I'm a creative writing professor now, but I've spent, I spent decades as a journalism professor and as a working journalist working for a number of different newspapers in various capacities copy editor and a feature writer and um, and the rest. And so I'm a real media person. Um, I write college textbooks, actually, and I'm in the middle of doing a second edition uh, of a college, introductory college media textbook. And so I'm often um, asked um, in class or in interviews, uh, I'm, I'm asked, what's my prediction uh, for future media? In fact, I edited a future media anthology, come to think of it, for um, uh, for Tachyon Books, where I reprinted uh, half fiction and half fact about the future of the media. And um, and when I started to think about that, I thought, well, we're only really a few steps away from right now from being from, from the receiver being fully immersed inside the head of the person who is the sender of the messages, which would be whether that person. So if that person is a rock star on a stage, you feel like you're that person performing. Um, if it's an athlete on the football field or the baseball diamond, you feel like you're that person. Um, there are all sorts of dark sides to that, obviously, but that's what the sweeping system is all about. Um, he connects himself up um, I call it every now and then it's full limbic. So you're getting the emotional side as well. Although, um, you know, the brain steps in um, and fills in the gaps when uh, when you're not feeling it emotionally. Um, uh, we all know how emotional you can be just watching a movie or reading a good book. Um, and so this system gives you the sights, the sound, um, the taste, the touch, um, um, all of the things that the person wearing the system is feeling, you're feeling those things too. And that's what my protagonist, Peter, 
uh, becomes, he's one of the very first, I have it set in the 2030s, and he's one of the very first ones to be hugely successful at that. Um, you buy a much cheaper system as a receiver, uh, he has the much more expensive system. In fact, he winds up having surgery to have um, um, elements of it uh, inside his inside his head. And um, and then he he sort of lives a, a public life and that becomes popular um, with all sorts of celebrities, obviously, who would like to do that as long as they can hit a, an off button sometimes. Hmm. Uh, but that was my motivation to have that system was thinking about what the media might be like in the future and the near future. You know, I, you know, I do this podcast and I, I interview people and I generally think of myself as pretty well tuned in to Internet celebrity. But I just watched this documentary called Jawline that was just super surreal to me. I don't know if you've if you've come across this at all. I haven't. So it's um, there are these people you, they, they have like sort of like cute guys, like young guys, like teenage or early 20s. And they yeah. just talk to teenage girls, mostly on the Internet and build up huge followings that way. And then they have these events <laughs> where they just show up and they don't, you know, they don't know how to sing or anything. So they just kind of, they're up on stage and there's all these fans screaming like it's the Beatles or something, but then they just kind of jump around on stage and like say, how's it going and take their pictures with people. And it was just like such a weird experience to see, you know, how the sort of internet celebrity stuff is. Uh, it's amazing. Um, um, our daughter, uh, who's a biologist in her, in her late twenties now, um, and her friends, um, are all big fans of gamers who perform publicly and you watch them play the games. That's become a big business and that's liable to become a, a much even bigger business now that, um, that you can't pack 50,000 people into a baseball park. So, um, I, I have to admit that I'm of the generation that doesn't quite get that, <laughs> but, um, but that's okay because that that works for them, and it's um, um, they get excited about it. They watch these um, these players um, do their thing, and those players are are now famous celebrities. I could not name a single one of them, but they're very <laughs> very famous celebrities. Yeah. Well, you mentioned baseball, and I, I we couldn't talk to you without mentioning baseball because there's a bunch of baseball stories in this um, in this uh, collection, and. Um, I guess the first thing I want to ask is, do you think that you've written more fantasy and science fiction baseball stories than anyone in history? Because I would, yeah, I was, to me. yeah, I was, um, I was on a panel. I'm, I'm always on the, at every Worldcon, I'm on the uh, baseball and sports in science fiction and fantasy panel. And I am frequently, um, the moderator of that panel, which has been fun over the years. And at the panel in Spokane, so this is now several years ago, the, um, the moderator said that he had looked it up and the only person who has published more baseball fantasy and or science fiction than me is was W.P. Kinsella, who was still alive at the time. And I thought, wow, you know, that's that's pretty heady company. You probably know W.P. Kinsella is the most famous of all the baseball fantasists, uh, terrific uh, uh, Canadian writer who also writes about um, um, the the native tribes in Canada. And um, and he wrote um, um, Shoeless Joe that became, uh, you know, he's famous for Field of Dreams and 
Um, and so I thought that was pretty good company to be in. And that was several years ago. And I've had another five or six published since then. So maybe I'm wrong, but I think to the best of my knowledge, I've published more certainly in the field, more science fiction and fantasy baseball short fiction um, than anybody else. Now, having said that, having said that, I'm I'm the emperor of a very small um, empire, a very small country. So um, not a lot of people, um, a lot of people write a few, um, but the readership is pretty narrow. And um, I don't know how many people uh, in, in the science fiction community among readers really enjoy baseball stories. It works for me because I think baseball is what I use as the metaphoric tool to discuss all sorts of things. And most Americans, whether they know it or not, have a really good grasp on baseball's terminology and how the game is played and the most famous of its players. And so and so if somebody in one of my stories says, look, we really need you, you have to step up to the plate. They might not even know that's a baseball reference, but but they but it works for them. So. Um, so it works for me. It's just my, a tool. I grew up in baseball, so so it's a tool. The um, the downside of that is I've had reviewers start their review by saying I loathe baseball. <laughs> so you know you know the the review is sort of going south after that. Um, but um, but most most people seem to um, to enjoy the stories. So at some point I've I've written I had a. In 1999, I had a collection of my baseball stories called Where Garagiola Waits. Um, and I think maybe it's time to do another collection of the baseball stories. Uh, the story that's in this collection, in Rambunctious, that's a baseball story, is um, something real. And it features Mo Berg, a very famous baseball catcher in the 1930s and 40s who became a spy um, for the OSS, for the American um, um, Secret Service during the war because he was a brilliant guy, a really odd personality and a modestly talented major league player, but a fascinating guy who spoke at least seven and maybe 12 languages, most of them European languages. Um, and so he, he made for a very good spy and he had a very successful career as a, as a spy. And the story that I tell an alternate history version of in this collection um, is based on a, a real story. Mo Berg was sent to neutral Switzerland in 1944 to listen to a speech by the head of the German A-bomb program, Werner Heisenberg. And Mo was there with a gun. And his job, if he thought Heisenberg hinted that the Germans were close to building an atomic bomb, Mo's job was to assassinate him while they were in neutral Switzerland, while he had access to do that. Um, and in our world, in our reality, uh, Mo did not assassinate him. In my alternate history, as I posited in this story, it all happens rather differently. Um, and I've written about that same conflict several other times with the same characters in, in other stories. I also wanted to mention um, there's 
uh, stories in this book that take place in Ireland and Scotland. And I was just wondering what, um, you know, kind of what prompted you to just. Right. So that's a great question. So um, I had a connection. I had a a sister of mine who um, who married a Scot. Uh, This is back in the late 70s. Um, in early 80s. And they eventually divorced. Um, but uh, she and I were close. And I went to visit her in Scotland. Um, you know, I met her husband and his friends. And I simply fell in love with Scotland. I felt like I really belonged there and resonated there. I found out years later that my mother's entire line is is Scottish. Um, I didn't quite realize that at, at the time. But I thought, what a wonderful place. And so I began to write a lot of stories um, over time that reflected back. I went to I must have gone to Scotland 10 or 15 times over the next decade. Um, I took student groups, college student tours. I took those groups there um, and I went on my own a few times. And uh, despite the weather, I really liked the place. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was really nice. And then uh, one of those trips. Uh, I met a, uh, a good friend, Michael O'Connor, because we had decided to do a trip that went to Ireland first and then to Scotland with a group of students, undergraduate college students. And uh, and so we landed in uh, in Shannon in Ireland and, and Mike O'Connor was our guide in Ireland. And um, I'd been there once or twice before and, and thought, thought, yeah, it was great. But with Mike. Uh, and his connections to everyone there, the the Irish people were so wonderful that um, that I started going there every year. And within four or five years, I I we'd quit going to Scotland entirely. And and so I have been to Ireland twenty six or twenty seven times um, since then. We just in fact last year before the Dublin WorldCon. Uh, my wife, Robin, and I took a group of um, writers and publishers and editors on a pre-con tour of Ireland. And we had a fabulous time led by Michael Connor again. And um, we had a great time. So I feel now like um, like I, I know I'm comfortable enough with Ireland that I feel free to write about the Irish experience at some level. There was a um, a scene in in the um, uh, I guess it was I forget if it was in Scotland or Ireland I guess it was Scotland in, in Hope as an Element of Cold Dark Matter where yeah the, that's that's Edinburgh Scotland the, yeah. the protagonist um, you know is a high school basketball player in the U S and she right. kind of demolishes um, these local basketball players right and that was kind of reminding me of a, a story you might find funny because I did a, a study abroad in Ireland when I was in college. Yeah. And I was in a bar on St. Patrick's Day and they had one of those kind of like kid basketball hoops set up. And yeah. they said if you could shoot six uh, baskets in 30 seconds or something, they would give you a free beer. And so I did it. And and, I, and the um, uh, bartender goes, no, keep going, keep going. And so I keep going, you know, and I got, I don't know, 18 or something. <laughs> it was it was, you know, it was like one of those like you would have at the fair or something. It wasn't right, that far right. away. And um, and she says, you know, you've gotten more than anyone all day. Uh, if nobody beats your record in the next 15 minutes, you win our grand prize package, you know, and um, and I'm not good at basketball at all. Just, you know, by just to make that clear. And um, but so I'm, I'm, I'm staying there. And I'm talking to the um, bartender, watching people you know, go up and miss all their shots. And she says, oh, where are you from? And I say, New York. And she's like, oh, are you here to play basketball? <laughs> That's great. So 
<laughs> I've had that's wonderful. That's a wonderful story. I've had that happen. Um, I was a um, a college athlete. My father was a major league baseball player. I should I should mention that when I talk about growing up in a sports family. And then he was a minor league manager for many years, AAA manager for many years. So I grew up in dugouts and clubhouses of major league teams through the 1950s uh, into the 60s. And um, and so I was, a, you know, a pretty good baseball player. I inherited some skills. So I played in, in high school and uh, went off to college on a football scholarship to the University of Minnesota. And you probably saw a little bit of that in today is today, the, the opening story of this. I sort of steal some of my memories from that. Um, but the point would be that eventually I wound up playing Division II basketball at Southern Illinois Edwardsville. Um, and I sat on the bench. All I could do was shoot, but, uh, but I, and I wasn't very good at anything else. But every now and then the coach would need me to come in and score six points and I would come in. So one time I went um, several years later and I, and I go to Scotland and, um, and I had a chance because of a friend there, I had a chance to work out with the Scottish national basketball team. And they were in a gym in, in Edinburgh. Um, and, and I was able to hold my own. I mean, I was exhausted at the end of a half hour, but I was able to hold my own. I scored a few baskets and I, and I played some defense. And, and that in those days, that said something about Scottish basketball in that era that a bench warmer on a division two team in the Midwest of America could stay on the court and not be embarrassed. So it was a similar thing that, um, um, that in those days, basketball was, um, was not a major sport in those countries. Since then, that's all changed. And, uh, they play, they play excellent basketball in, uh, in, in Ireland and in Scotland. And, uh, and of course, European basketball is, famous for its high quality. In fact, the RNBA teams are stealing players from Europe all the time. But, uh, but back in those days, it was a pretty, a pretty rare occurrence. I also wanted to ask in, um, in the Ireland story, walking to Boston, there's a scene where a, um, it's a sort of a flashback to World War II and a, a B-25 uh, right. crashes. And I thought it was just really, really well written, that scene. And I was thinking it must have taken a lot of research or just what was your writing process for doing, <laughs> you are, doing that? You are asking fa fabulous questions. So my father-in-law was top turret gunner in a B-25 bomber in World War II in the Pacific Theater. Um, he died some years ago. Uh, but toward the last few years of his life, uh, we had numerous conversations of what it was like being inside a B-25. He was flight engineer and top turret gunner. Um, we had a chance to one of those air museums um, to go see a B-25. Um, and I was there with him as he was remembering what it had been like for him um, in the Pacific Theater. And, um, and then I had a chance to be inside one at another air museum later after, after he had died. Uh, and I was so fascinated by that particular aircraft that I've used it in a number of stories, including that particular story, uh, walking to Boston uh, and in that particular story. And I, those memories that are used there, uh, my father-in-law and his crew flew uh, 25 or 30 missions uh, and they all came home 
they had some crash landings and they had some excitement and they were involved in a lot of action, but they all came back. Um, but they never crash landed on the Shannon estuary <laughs> in, uh, uh, in Ireland. Uh, but it was pretty easy for me to sort of be inside the head of my protagonist because I had had so many conversations with my father-in-law, who was a great guy. Yeah, just all the stuff about the tail hitting first and then the body slamming down and all the creaking and the glass cracking. It just it just right. felt very real to me, all that. The well, whole sequence. thank you. There was a lot of research into that. But um, uh, but there was also just um, the, the comfort level. I feel like. Things that I have, I know well enough to write about. I can research to fill in the gaps of the parts I don't know. And B25s are one of those things I feel I know well enough to do that because of my father-in-law. Yeah, I also want to mention. I mean, that for many years you've been one of the administrators of the Dell Magazines Award, and that's actually how we first met because I, I was one of the winners in back in way back in 1997. Right. And uh, so you uh, you were one of the first people I ever met in, uh, you know, that was ICFA, the uh, right. International Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts. That was the first sort of convention I ever went to. And so you were one of the first people oh, that's I wonderful. met. Probably you were the first person I met because I think you picked me up at the airport. So oh, that's great. You may have been the first person I ever met in the sort of science fiction community. Um, so, yeah, I really remember, you know, you and Michael Bishop kind of took me under your wing and were right. super nice to me all weekend. Um, and I noticed that there was, uh, there's a blurb on here from, on this book from Michael Bishop. And so I was right. just wondering, uh, if you guys I, keep in yeah, touch. Michael, so. Mike, I'm, I'm a huge admirer of Michael Bishop, um, his writing. And I, and I have to, of all the writers I know, I, I know a ton of writers and I admire them all. But one of those writers that I most admire his style is, is Michael Bishop. And so I read everything I can of his. Um, I have a lot of autograph books of his. Um, we talk pretty often. Um, and uh, and Michael Bishop, the first time I met this all fits together with uh, the Dell Award, incredibly. Uh, the first time I met him was at the World Fantasy Conference in Pine Mountain, Georgia in 1993, I think. Um, and. That conference, Pine Mountain, is where Michael Bishop lives. So at that conference, um, I actually played one-on-one -on, -one on his outdoor court with <laughs> Michael Bishop. We played basketball together. Amazing. And, uh, and Sheila Williams and I, over breakfast one day, my wife was there as well, and we were just talking about we, we should try to start something that got young people, uh, college people interested in writing science fiction and fantasy. And um, we sort of conjured up this award uh, and started uh, by 1994. We were we were um, um, starting the award uh, and many, many terrific writers and, and editors um, have come, have sort of gotten a leg up on their careers, we think, by being finalists or winning. Um, the Dell Award, which in those days was the Isaac Asimov Award. And um, and yeah, we, uh, Sheila and I are both uh, very proud of that. We both talk about it a lot. And um, so it's great that um, uh, that it had an effect on you and brought you into the field so that, lo, these many years <laughs> later, you and I could talk <laughs> on the Geek's Guide. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. It was a huge, um, huge thing for me. And I don't know if I ever would have, you know, I went to Clarion two years later and all this stuff. And I don't know if, how much of that would have happened if it hadn't been for the, for that award. So yeah, no, it was, it was a huge uh, thing in my life. Um, Great. And, you know, looking back through all the, I was looking back through all the previous winners and everything, and there are a lot of names I recognize, um, you know, who have, who are still writing and still, you know, become big names in the fields. Um, are there any um, sort of memories over the years of like people you met as college students or, uh, you know, things connected with the Dell Awards that stick out in your mind? I know it's all kind of kind of forced one... together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because it's it's so. I mean, I was I've been a college professor for forty five years, and um, and so I've, I've you know thousands and thousands of students, but my annual highlight. Um, certainly at the undergraduate level is meeting is judging. I mean, I'm the first round judge is judging the stories. Um, and then Sheila and I, she does a blind judging and then, um, and then we pick the winners and, and finalists and I'm the one who gets to notify them, which is a wonderful thing to do. It's cause it's people get excited. And then I'm the one that sort of squires. I still do that. Squires everybody around at the conference and make sure you meet people um, and, you, and you get to know everybody in the field. Um, and it's been. It's really been one of the highlights of um, every year. It's one of the highlights of the year for me is uh, handling the Dell Awards at the conference on the fantastic. Now, this year we had COVID-19 canceled because of that. The conference was canceled. So we did um, a Zoom award ceremony and reading, uh, and a number of other people attended it, as you can do on Zoom. And, um, and our winner, Rona Wang from MIT, read her story, and then um, I chatted a little bit, then Sheila chatted a little bit, um, and then we sort of electronically handed the certificates <laughs> to everybody um, and then we electronically handed that we have a plaque these days for the winner. Sorry about that. We need to get you a plaque. I think you're oh. pre plaque. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, um, so that, and that worked out great, you know, good, good for us, good for zoom. Um, but it wasn't socially what happens, what you enjoyed at the conference and all the other people have enjoyed. It wasn't quite as good as that. You don't get to hang out poolside with Peter Straub or Joe Haldeman. Um, uh, you know, these, uh, uh, these really fabulous Elizabeth hand was there all the time in those days. And you're sitting down with some of the finest writers in the field, um, sitting at a table with them and chatting. And for a lot of 20 year olds just getting going in the field, that's a, that's a pretty big event. Yeah, it was, it was huge for me. You know, I, I vividly remember just sitting in the hot tub and there's just a bunch of people all sitting around in the hot tub. And the guy next to me is like, oh, hi, uh, what's your name? And I say, I'm David, you know, and he's like, oh, hi, I'm Steve, you know, and, and then the conversation <laughs> goes on. And then like the next day I realize like, oh, that's Stephen R. Donaldson, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And that's just like Steve. Steve goes every year. He's he's an important, hugely important part of the conference. Steve and I are, are good friends. And um, and it's wonderful that that he would do that and that. You think about the life he has led where you don't get a chance to do that very often. So to be in a situation where, um, from his perspective, where he knows that um, it's not so much a matter of being a fan of his work, but just being a fellow writer at the start of a career um, 
where he's a little farther along in his career. And, and so for many of the writers there, um, that's what the conference is all about. They love the undergraduate students. They always love chatting with them um, and just talking about the field and uh, getting to know them. And in many cases, you know, another few years later, um, your peers. So there you go. It's funny you mentioned the plaque. You know, it occurs to me, I, I do, I did get a certificate, you know, it, right. I, I framed it, you know, it has um, Asimov's face on it. And um, except all I, the, the ink is kind of faded out of the signatures. So <laughs> I could definitely use a plaque or something. All right, we'll do it. We'll do it. <laughs> we'll get you, we'll get you a plaque. All right. All right. Perfect. <laughs> well, no, seriously, we'll get, we'll get you a plaque. All right, great. And also, um, you mentioned that you're, um, you've been teaching at um, Western Colorado University. You want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, about um, about two years ago, um, I got a phone call from the then head of the program, um, uh, Russell Davis, who's a very accomplished uh, novelist and writer. Um, he was running the genre fiction program, which is part of um, the uh, creative writing low residency MFA at Western Colorado University. And they were looking to add somebody um, to the faculty and, and would I be interested? And, um, heck yes. So, so, uh, we just started talking from there and, um, uh, and I've really enjoyed my, my time there. Um, I'm, uh, a visiting assistant professor in genre fiction at the low residency MMA MFA at, um, at Western Colorado University. So, I mean, there's great people on the faculty, and there's also a publishing concentration. You can get an MA in publishing, and Kevin J. Anderson runs that. Um, there's a screenwriting faculty with some fabulous people, a nature writing faculty, um, a poetry faculty, and, and all of these people are known for being great instructors as well as being really talented writers. In genre fiction, Carlos Hernandez is on the faculty. Kat Howard is on the faculty. Um, Fran Wild is the director of the genre fiction faculty. Candace Nadon is, um, is on the faculty, and I'm on the faculty. Um, and then we bring in guests um, all the time. So it's a really innovative program because it's, it welcomes genre fiction of all types, everything from westerns to horror um, most of the writers are sort of science fiction and fantasy, but there are romance writers and Western writers, um, all of which is great. And, um, so it's been really fun to be part of a faculty where these things that some mainstream programs, low residency or, or on campus, uh, MFAs, uh, they're rather more interested in the mainstream and the literary mainstream and perhaps not as interested in genre fiction, but we embrace it as some other programs do. Stone Coast is famously embraces it. And um, and it's really great to work with faculty um, and and staff uh, to a program that really welcomes uh, people who want to get that um, that M.A., uh, the MFA, because if you get the MFA, that's sort of a, an important tool if you want to wind up. It's the important tool if you want to wind up teaching um, creative writing uh, at the college level. 
I was reading an interview this morning where it sounded like when you were a student trying to write science fiction, they were really giving you hell. So it must be kind of a nice uh, change that now you can actually teach in a, a program yeah. that's welcoming to that. Yeah, when I was an undergraduate, that was a long time before. There weren't even really any much creative writing taught at the undergrad level. And, and maybe Iowa and one or two others were teaching uh, a master's in, in creative writing. And, uh, and I had a, a creative writing teacher who um, all I wanted to write was science fiction. And all he wanted to ban was science <laughs> fiction. So we did, we did not, we did not get along. And um, um, the years went by, I did find a couple of people on the English faculty. They did not teach creative writing, unfortunately, but they liked mainly because of um, Tolkien. They liked fantasy and they allowed me to get my master's from that same department, from the English department, my master's um, in English lit at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. And um, and uh, uh, Dickie Spurgeon and Roberta Bossy, I cite their names all the time because they made it OK. They said to the rest of the faculty, it was OK. And I did a master's thesis on Robert Heinlein. It was the first science fiction master's thesis. It was terrifying. <laughs> I've got to tell you, <laughs> it was terrifying. It was so much pressure. Um, and it's not a very good master's thesis. They often aren't. Um, but I was happy to, to get through that program. And, uh, and then when I had a chance all these years later to teach in a program that embraced science fiction, fantasy, and all the other genres, I, I grabbed at it. It was Michaela Rosner, a person I knew, wonderful, wonderful person I knew from um, doing workshops was on that faculty and she's the first one to say, Hey, you should be on our faculty. And then she talked uh, to Russell and Russell talked to me and there I am. You mentioned in the interview that one of these professors who was um, supportive of you was a Shakespeare professor. Yeah. And it just seems like, you know, why would you be a Shakespeare professor and not like fantasy? Like what, <laughs> like what, what do you think yeah, I didn't happens that in Shakespeare? Yeah, it took me years to put that together, <laughs> to put to put two and two together. But yeah, Dickie Spurgeon, uh, just a wonderful, wonderful guy. And um, and he was very open to it. In fact, I still remember I was taking a, ca a class in Shakespeare from him. And he allowed me for my term paper at the end of the semester. This is um, I think this was still undergraduate. So my term paper at the end of the semester, he allowed me to do a science fictional version of King Lear. And, uh, and he gave me an A, bless his heart. <laughs> That's a memory I haven't conjured up in a long, long time. But I think he just gave me an A for my being courageous enough to, to take that on, um, to do my version of, of King Lear. Yeah. I'd be afraid to look at that now. <laughs> All right, great. So we're uh, pretty much out of time. So do you want to just talk about any um, upcoming projects you have or just anything else you want to mention? Well, yeah, I've, um, I've done a couple of collaborations. Let's talk about that. I have a collaboration in the current, the May-June Asimovs with, um, with Brad Aiken, Dr. Brad Aiken, who's a, um, um, a medical doctor, a, a physiatrist. I think that I said it correctly. He works in, um, um, he works in physical rehabilitation, and he works in uh, – um, uh, he gets involved in uh, – in making and getting a chance for, for people to recover from um, serious, serious injuries. And uh, Brad and I talked about, 
he's he's a big baseball fan. Poor guy is a Baltimore Orioles fan, <laughs> uh, which is in the last few years has been a really difficult thing to be. But but Brad and I started talking about uh, doing a story, and he'd never been in Asimov's and was really anxious to see if we could get one in. Um, and um, and I I liked a lot what he had to say, and I fell back as as I do with scientists of all sorts. I fell back on his expertise in that story. And we have a story that's in the current Asimov's called Ithaca um, that's, um, that combines his medical knowledge and my baseball knowledge uh, and tells the story of a, a woman uh, baseball player, an outstanding player, and her troubled brother. There I am again. Same thing again, right? Sibling rivalries in, uh, in baseball. So, And then I have another collaboration that's coming up in the fall, I think, in Asimov's with Kevin J. Anderson. Kevin and I, um, in another car drive, he said, let's let's write a short story together. And I said, sure, thinking that would that meant over the course of the next year we would work on it. So so we got where we were going and we knocked out an idea and we got where we were going and um and I got settled in and I did whatever I did that day. And then the next day, Kevin sends me the first draft of a short story. <laughs> based on our idea. And I thought, I don't think I can keep up with this guy. But um, but he was very kind about letting me have all the time I needed. So what he did in five or six hours, I did my part in five or six months. Um, and and that story will be out in the fall. It's a, uh, a novelette uh, called The Hind, H-I-N-D. And uh, it's a generationship story that, that Kevin and I wrote that to the best of my recollection, has no baseball in it. So let's make that make that a note. Um, and it's a really good story. It was really fun uh, working with Kevin. I thought uh, I thought you were going to say Kevin uh, says, "Okay, let's get started." And just whips out his tape recorder and starts dictating the story <laughs> while you're driving. That's, that's that's what he not while he's driving, but he went for a mountain hike the next day, and on that mountain hike, dictated the entire first draft of the story. To me, to me, that's almost unfathomable except i know he did it because i saw it happen otherwise i would never believe that's possible he took out took time out from writing a novel to write a short story in one hike um and then um and then i had a a story in uh an anthology movies monsters and mayhem that's coming out in july that's really innovative um anthology where the master's students at western got a chance to do all of the work that students do, selecting stories, soliciting stories, um, all about monsters, movies, and mayhem. And um, it's got several writers that were solicited. I was uh, among those, but we still had to pass muster, they said. And um, and that story is another one of my Sudani stories um, called False Bay. It's, it's set in False Bay, which is uh, Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, which I've never been to, but my daughter, the biologist, uh, our daughter, the biologist, went there to do research. And so she shared with me all of her information about caracal cats and false bay and, and all the rest. So she was the expert I leaned on for that one. So all of that's coming out in the next few months. Actually, I'm excited about that. I have a couple reprints coming out in Pulp House that Pulp House is reprinting from many years ago. So it's a busy it's a busy time for me as a writer. And then Alien Day. One of these Alien ones. Day, Alien Day will be out. Um, it was going to be out in November or December of this year, and they pushed it back, much much to my disappointment. But that's how it goes in the business. Sometimes they pushed it back to next June, a year June, I think. 
Oh, well, and that's tour books. Yeah, well, hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll all be able to go to the movies by then. So, yeah. So, yeah, we're hoping um, for um, uh, for Kevin that uh, that the Dune movie gets to be seen the way I'm sure it's meant to be seen, which is on a big screen in a comfortable theater. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we've been speaking with Rick Wilbur about his new book, Rambunctious. So, Rick, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much, David. It was great talking to you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Rick Wilbur for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank J.N. Cheney and Christopher Hopper for sponsoring today's show. Check out their military sci-fi novel, Ruins of the Galaxy, over at ruinsofthegalaxy.com, and pick up the new audiobook version over at audible.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.